mentioned last week, we're starting a new three-week series for Sunday morning. Uh, don't worry, Matthew's tonight, and so Matthew is on the on the back end for the next three weeks because those are some uh, really important messages that we'll be talking about still there. But uh, for this morning, I wanted to come to uh, the book of Jude because Jude really functions as uh, a picture of an important guardrail for faith. You probably see guardrails all the time and don't observe them really because they're just kind of everywhere where, where you drive. And maybe after today, you'll be a little bit more aware of them. And their their purpose is important. They're to keep you from catastrophic accidents, usually to keep you going off of bridges or high roads or cliffs or things like that is where uh, a guardrail will will exist to try to keep you on the road sufficiently so that you do not completely uh, destroy your life or or lose it prematurely. I will never forget in when I lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and about my first, second year there, they finally finished a freeway that came from I-40 on the south side of Fort Smith and went north into northwest Arkansas into Fayetteville, Arkansas. The 540 that they had finally completed was had one interesting section on it. After you would go shooting through this tunnel, you would come to the other side and you probably about had 500 to 1,000 yards. And then the road just took a strong turn left. And that didn't seem like any big deal under normal circumstances until you drove it in winter. And in winter, that became a real interesting phenomenon because you're driving through a tunnel where it's nice and dry and there's no problem, only to get on the other side of the tunnel, hit the ice, and then kind of go sliding toward this horrifying cliff that's on the other side where there was no guardrail. And for a long time, we all talked about, they really should put a guardrail there before somebody goes plunging over the cliff into their death. They finally did. It took a few years, but they finally put one there because it almost felt like a launch ramp to your death as you came out of that tunnel. And nobody, when they put the guardrail up, said, oh, I can't believe they're taking away our freedom like that. How terrible of the state to be able to throw these guardrails up. How dare they? Uh, I can't believe that they would be doing something like that. I like having the freedom to slide off the road wherever I please. Uh, Nobody does that about a guardrail. Nobody looks at the guardrail and gets mad at it. I can't believe that's there. How, How dare that thing be there? It serves an important function and role. And if you end up having a problem, you're really going to be glad it's there. And that's what Jude is writing about. That is what Jude is ultimately trying to describe as he writes this short letter to these Christians who is basically placing a guardrail on their faith. In fact, you will notice that at the very end of the letter where he says there in verse 21 of the book of Jude, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He rounds this letter out by saying, I'm trying to keep you in the love of God. I'm putting the guardrails in place so that you can stay on the right path and not go flying off. Keep yourself in the love of God as you wait for his mercy when, when he returns. And so that's what the book is really laying out for us. Now, we're going to look at these first four verses where we're going to notice that the, the writer here 
seems to have a change of plans. It's a very interesting book, how he begins. In a number of ways, this is fascinating. First of all, in the first verse, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And you might read that and think, okay, you know, Jude, brother of James and a servant of Jesus Christ, except by saying that he's the brother of James tells us He's also the brother of Jesus. And it's interesting that he doesn't throw that one out there. Hey, by the way, brother of Jesus here, got an important letter you might want to listen. He calls himself a servant of Jesus, but by saying brother of James, when you read over in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55, where the brothers are listed, one of the names there is Judas. And Jude, Judah, and Judas are the same thing, same, same Greek word there. And so you have the brother of Jesus, just like you see in Acts 15, the brother of Jesus, that is James, who is an important figure in that first century church. So also Jesus' brother Jude is also an important figure who writes this letter. And he speaks beautifully in verse 1 that seems to give a picture of what he was probably going to write about, where he says, to those who are called... Loved by God, the Father, and kept in Christ Jesus. So beautiful start here. You are the called, you are loved by God, you are kept, you're made safe by Jesus Christ. And you get a sense that that's where this letter was going to go. Except he says there in verse 3, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. It sounds like he was going to sit down and write a very encouraging letter about how you're called and how you're loved by God and how you're kept by Jesus Christ. And he says, and so I wanted to write a letter about that salvation. I wanted to talk to you about this this great hope and joy that we share together. But then he he turns around and says, uh, but I couldn't do that. Verse three, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and to deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to write about this common salvation, but there's a problem. And so I need to write and address the problem that exists there. And it makes you want to go, okay, well, what was the big deal? What what is going on that is such a pressing need to change authorial intent? And I was going to write about this, but I'm not going to be able to do that. And I want you to notice what he describes there in verse 4, where he says, We have these people who have... Come in among you and what they are doing is they are perverting the grace of God into sensuality and they are denying Jesus as their only Lord and master. So what's the picture here? It sounds like what is happening is that they are saying we have the grace of God and since we walk in the grace of God, Being able to do whatever our fleshly desires want is okay. Notice he says, they're turning, they're perverting, they're changing the grace of God into this right or license or ability into sensuality. 
Now, don't read sensuality and just and think sexuality. That would be included. But sensuality is just following the senses. You're following the desires. Just whatever sounds good, whatever feels good, whatever seems best, whatever seems right. And that's what they're doing. They are taking the grace of God and saying, since we have God's grace, we can go ahead and follow those desires. That's okay. We'll do what we want to do, live how we want to live. And it's going to be absolutely fine for us to do that. So think about just following worldly and fleshly behaviors. And so that's the indication that they are giving here. And then in the middle of that, it also says there, they will at the end of verse, verse four, and they deny our only master and Lord. Now, I don't think what that means is they've come in among their group and saying, Jesus is not Lord and master. I don't think anybody's going to be tricked by that. I don't think anybody's being swept away by these people who have come in unnoticed and they're proclaiming Jesus is not Lord. I think that would be a really evident thing. That's, that's not what the issue is. I think this is describing the effect of what is happening by denying or saying we can live in the grace of God and follow our passions, follow our lusts, follow our desires, follow our senses, follow our heart, follow our minds, do what we want to do. That ultimately is denying that Jesus is your master and Lord. You are saying you're God. My desires are in charge. My wants, my thoughts, my heart, my wishes. Because ultimately what it means of following Jesus is that we are giving our lives to Jesus' complete control. Following Jesus means he controls how we act in our families and in our marriages. Following Jesus means he controls how we behave at work. How we behave in our communities, how we act on uh, uh, in our careers and, and in the church and among our friends and in people, strangers we don't know. The whole idea of submitting to Jesus as Lord isn't just merely, okay, Jesus is God. That's easy. But submitting to his rule. He's in charge of my life. So how he tells me to live, that's what I'm going to do. And if he says, act this way, then I will act this way. If he tells me to behave this way, then I'll behave that way. If he says, don't do that, I won't do that. He's saying, what they're doing by saying, we have grace and we can follow our passions is denying that God's in charge. That's the problem. That's the ultimate issue that stands before them is that we are making ourselves masters. We're making ourselves Lord and denying the fact that Jesus is master and Lord of our lives. I want you to observe another aspect to the problem that's stated there in verse four. It says, certain people have crept in unnoticed. I think that's interesting. They have crept in unnoticed. We sometimes have the tendency to think that Christians who are ungodly are false come in blowing trumpets and making noise and making it clear that, hey, we're false Christians and we're here to destroy your faith. <laughs> you know, they're going to come in and go, yeah, we, we don't believe Jesus is Lord. We do whatever we want. You know, that, that's, that's not how it works. And that's what he's saying is they're in your group and you don't even see it. They're among you. They've crept in unnoticed. They're not making fanfare about it. 
They're not, you know, proclaiming these things. They're not obvious teachers of things that are false. They're just in the group. They've, they've crept in unnoticed. And he says there even in verse 4 that these were things that were designated or written about or noted long ago. And I think the point that he's making there is not that these individuals have been always written up in that way. But that's just always been the nature of the way things are. The prophets talked about how people among them would be following their own desires and passions and claim to be true but actually be false. You have Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 talking about how there's going to rise up wolves among the sheep and he's, they're going to destroy them. You have the Apostle Paul giving a very similar warning in 1 Timothy 4 and telling them that people were going to depart from the faith and follow after false teaching. This has been a long problem. There's nothing new about what Jude is observing here. Like, wow, this is radically unbelievable that people would claim to be followers of God, but they're really not. It's always been that way. This is a thing that has been designated long ago, all throughout human history and all throughout the pages of Scripture is written down that these things would be happening. And so Jude says, this isn't a surprise that there are people among you who would do these things. And as we set up this book, I want us to observe then that Jude is writing about an internal problem, not an external problem. And that's really important because next week, Lord willing, we're going to read about all these crazy sins in the middle of of the book. And it's so easy to read about all those false people out there. Those terrible sinners out there, shame on them. He isn't writing about that. He's writing about inside. These are people who have crept in unnoticed. They belong and they're not observed as being false. They're blending right in among the Christians with them. That's what he's writing about. And he's saying, I wanted to write about this common salvation. I wanted to talk about how you're you're loved, called and kept. But instead, there's an issue that I'm aware of. There are those who have crept in unnoticed, who are ungodly people, who are taking the wonderful grace of God and saying, it's okay to follow after your own desires. And by doing so, they're ultimately denying the sovereign reign of Christ because we are to have Christ control our lives and not our hearts, not our minds and not our desires. So now I think the big question is then, So what are they supposed to do about this? Here you have this among them. What is supposed to be the reaction? What's the response? What are we supposed to do that we have within us those who are false? So I want you to look again at verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He says, here's what needs to happen. He says, I'm writing to you so that you will contend for the faith. That word contend, which I think nearly all the translations use, is a word that speaks about an intense struggle. It speaks of an intense fight that is going on. So when it speaks of contend, don't think about that as, you know, just simply sitting there, well, I contend against that. But there is intensity behind it. It is a struggle. It is a fight. It is a wrestling that is going on. He says, I want you to contend for this faith. Now, I think this is interesting to think about. 
Because notice he doesn't say, I want you to contend or earnestly struggle for your personal faith. Well, I would suppose that would be true. That's not what he's telling them. He's not telling them your beliefs about Jesus. I want you to contend for those and wrestle with those and all that. But he says, I want you to contend for the faith, not your faith, the faith. And that's a fascinating thing to say, because by saying the faith, Jude then is proclaiming to us that there is a certain set of truths that have to be believed, defended, and never distorted. There is some body of information that must exist that is not changing, that must be held on to, that must be believed, and that must never be distorted or tossed aside. There is this the faith idea. To put that perhaps in another way, there is a standard of some kind. Well, this is a radical idea in our culture right now. There is actually a standard to believe, to maintain, to hold on to and defend of truths about God, about Jesus, about ourselves, and about what is right and what is wrong. There is a standard. The faith. There is an existence of that. And I think that's important. Because I think right now there is just this big idea that you can just kind of believe what you want to believe. And you can have your thoughts and beliefs and I'll have my thoughts and beliefs and you'll have your thoughts and beliefs and you'll have your ideas and we'll all just have all of these great ideas about God and Jesus and morals and standards and right and wrong and all. Then we'll all just hold on to our own personal things. And I want you to see, Jude does not say, contend for your belief pattern. He doesn't say to do that. That'd be easy. Okay, I believe what I believe. I mean, that's kind of our problem right now. So, you know, we got 300 million Americans all saying, I believe what I believe. <laughs> that's not what he says to contend for. He says there is a body of information, a set of truths that comes from God that we are to contend for, that we are to believe and hold on to and defend and never change, never distort. He says that is the thing that we need to have. And the word of God teaches us what that is. This body of truth is the word of God. And it teaches us what we need to believe, what we need to submit to, what we need to obey, what we need to defend. It comes from the word of God itself. We can't come to the word of God and make it what we want to make it. That's our, our, our air we breathe right now. We'll just make it say what we want to say. We'll bend it if we want to bend it. We won't read it if we don't like it. We'll just call it antiquated if it doesn't work for us. Because ultimately we want to do what Jude is talking about. We want to follow our own desires and our own wants and our own heart and our own ways. Throw it under the grace of God and say we're all okay. And I want you to notice Jude says you can't do that. He says, in fact, when you do that, 
You are perverting the grace of God and denying Jesus to be Lord and Master. When you just say, well, we'll all just kind of make what we want to make out of it. And, you know, you, it's like, like a cloud. You see an elephant and I see a pig. And so that's okay. You know, we're all just seeing our own thing and following our own thing. He says, you're denying Jesus. This is no small thing to him. You're denying the faith. And he says, instead of denying it, I want you to contend for the faith. Now, I was thinking about this idea of contending for the faith once delivered for the saints. And I was just kind of thinking, why is it we bristle at that now? How did we get here? Where the idea of struggling for the faith and saying, this is the set body of beliefs, and this is what we need to hold on to, and this is what needs to be obeyed, and this is what needs to be practiced. Why has that become such a negative concept anymore? And I do think there's probably a number of reasons. I think perhaps there are three that might most directly affect us. With this, I think number one, our, our culture has certainly strongly pushed us to say it just doesn't matter what you believe. Believe what you want to believe and just don't make me have to believe it. <laughs> it's kind of where it is, you know, or we'll just meme each other to death on social media and that'll change people's hearts. Yeah, that'll be great. That'll work well. Just believe what you want to believe. You're, you're fine. Have your own faith. And as long as at the end of the day, we all love Jesus and say we're Christians, then it's fine. That's kind of what our culture has shoved us into at this point. And I want us to see that Jude is saying that's not possible. He doesn't say, well, as long as you have a good natured heart about God, hold your personal faith. It's all okay. But rather, I need you to intensely struggle for the faith. There is a the faith that needs to be defended. And it isn't just simply, you just hold on to what you think and good luck to everybody else and I hope they figure it out. There's an engagement that is happening. In fact, you might remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13 as he talks about the reason that Christ has given us these gifts, apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers, is ultimately, after talking about this equipping of the body, he says, till we all attain the unity of the faith. There is this the faith that he pictures We're all kind of messed up on that we're all coming to. We are being taught by God and coming together to the faith. Not, well, we all have all of our different things and that's okay, just stay there. But I want you to come to the unity of the faith. One of the reasons I like that passage so much is do you think that's ever going to happen? That is like a, a permanent process. If I said, okay, everybody in this room, we're all going to work to come to the unity of the faith. And then we baptize somebody and they come in. Well, now we're starting all over again. And now we've got to get everybody coming back to the unity of the faith. This is a constant thing. This is always happening as we're constantly changing to the faith. That we are learning what God says, discovering his truths, changing the way we think and act and coming together in that. Can I do another aside? That's what Bible classes are for. 
This is number one reason why we have Bible studies. 9.30 in the morning, 7 Wednesday night, in the neighborhoods that we're getting ready to fire up here real soon. Number one reason why. Because we aren't, the, the idea of coming to the unity of the faith is not me standing up here and telling you what to believe. But us coming together, expressing what we understand the scriptures to say, and then working those things out till we come to that unity. And that could only happen when we're talking about the Bible together. Can't happen in potlucks and social things. It's got to happen in talking about the Bible. So that's what Bible classes are for, is that discussion, that go back and forth, that trying to figure it out. This is what Jude's talking about. There is the faith that we need to be struggling for that we are all coming together for. I think there's another reason, though, we might have bristled at the idea of the contending for the faith. If you grew up in the pews like me, you've probably seen this done poorly. (laughs) Just to be fair. You have seen contending for the faith done in some of the most ungodly ways possible. Yelling, screaming. I had one preacher tell me that a fight broke out in the pews. I thought, I mean, not like verbal, I mean a fist fight. And I'm like, well, that says something. Wow. (laughs) We really need some help here. Uh, How often have you seen contending for the faith mean loss of self-control, anger, abusiveness, divisiveness, blowing one another up? Ruining relationships and it all be put under the umbrella. Well, we got to contend for the faith around here. I think that's one reason why we can bristle at it. Contending for the faith does not mean knocking each other's lights out. (laughs) It does not mean anger, loss of self-control or throwing away any of the Christian characteristics and virtues that we have been called to maintain. But you might have seen that happen. You might have witnessed those things, and that might be the reason why you may not be thrilled about the idea of intensely struggling for the faith. But friends, just because we may have seen people do this wrong or sinfully doesn't mean that we're not charged to hold on to the faith and believe it and defend it. Just because it may have been done really, really badly all of our lives (laughs) does not mean there's not a right way to be able to do this. And I think one other reason, and this goes back to growing up in the pews, so I'm coming from my perspective, so I'm I'm being fair with you about this, is that we're just weary with that. You might have also grown up in the pews and all you were told was what to believe. You know, we believe this and we believe that and those people out there are dumb and they don't believe that. And so they're terrible and stupid and all of that. And so that's how often... We might have been exposed to that where we're just weary at the idea. I don't want to hear about a set uh, group of truths or doctrines or beliefs. It's all I've ever heard my whole life. And I think it's important to consider that there is a warning to that. Uh, Jesus was dealing with that. You might remember Jesus talks to the Pharisees and he says, yeah, you, you've got all the little nitty details down and you're tithing even the teeniest of plants and you missed faithfulness, justice, <laughs> love. You, you missed some of the big E on the I chart that's right there about being a Christian. 
And you might have been in a place like that where it just totally missed the character of God. But boy, you knew like 20 things you had to believe. And that's not contending for the faith either. I think it's important that we consider and remember that reading the scriptures just to learn the rules is just as much of a mistake as never talking about that there is a defined set of beliefs. And we can't just swing pendulums back and forth and we'll never talk about doctrine and beliefs and we'll all just kind of have our personal faith nor can we just say we're only going to talk about doctrines and beliefs and completely miss the character and the beauty of God. There is a place in the middle that we can learn about God, see God, and that draw us to these important beliefs that Jude says we have to contend for. By the way, if you grew up in that circumstance, I have great compassion for you. I understand the absolute Difficulty It has probably been in your life to navigate out of that kind of world where you were just blown up week after week after week with rules and rules and rules. And here's what you have to believe. And I hope one of the things that you see by being here is that's not how the word of God operates. These books were not written that way. And there is so much more to see in the beauty of God's word. Let me talk about one other important aspect about what, what there is in this, this picture that has been given to us about, about what, what God has, has, has done. Is you will notice that he says also in verse 3 something very interesting. He says in verse 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I think that's an interesting way to put that. To be able to say, I want you to contend for this faith that was once delivered for all. That Jude is clearly observing something here and saying, this faith was not going to be open-ended. Where there would be constant new revelations of information tacked on years upon years upon years upon years. He says, he pictures it almost like a, 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 a present. It's almost like it's gift wrap. It's been delivered to you once for all time. Here it is, and that's the end. You now possess it, you now have it. Delivered once for all to you. And I think that one of the reasons why that is particularly important is historically, we read about all kinds of self-proclaimed prophets who claim to have a revelation from God that, you know, well, now you need to believe this and go this way because God told me something, and so here you go. And there's been lots and lots of those people, two most famous are Joseph Smith and Muhammad, but there's all kinds of others that have done the same thing. And they just come along and say, God gave me a revelation, and so here's the new info. And Jude writes and says, that's not going to happen. The faith has been delivered. It's done. Here's what you need to know. Here's the, the set word of God to understand. It has been delivered to us once for all. And friends, that means we're not allowed to be editors of it. If this is the faith delivered for all time, for all people, for all ages, then our job is not to come in and be an editor of it. 
and decide, well, I like that and don't like that. This kind of brings full circle of what Jude is dealing with. We're going to take the grace of God and say, well, that means we can live how we want to live and do what we want to do. And that's going to make it okay. And he's saying, you can't do that. We're not allowed to be editors of it. We're not allowed to change it, distort it, do any kind of thing like that with it. We must believe what it says and follow exactly what it says. And it's so easy for us to want to change it to fit our needs and fit our wishes and fit our desires rather than changing ourselves to match this faith that has been delivered once for all. All right, so what is my my big message in all of this? A few things that I want to talk about as, as we wrap up. Why is it so important that Jude would just change the whole of his letter, which was going to be about a common salvation, that you are called, loved, and kept. And he goes, but I couldn't write about that. Instead, I have to write to you this struggle for the faith intensely and earnestly contend for why is that so important and the big point that he's making here is that there are going to be people and i'm not talking about outsiders there are going to be people who are going to distort the scriptures so that sensual living is excused or acceptable It's amazing that in 2,000 years, not a whole lot has changed, huh? (laughs) You think, wow, Jude wrote yesterday this letter, didn't he? About people who want to, under the guise of God, say, we can do whatever we want to do. We can live how we want to live. And so that's what we have going on. Sexual relations outside of marriage, okay. Divorce and remarriage, okay. Sexual sins, okay. Adultery is okay. Homosexuality is okay. Selfishness is okay. Follow your heart, that's okay. Live how you want to live, that's okay. No self-restraint, that's okay. No self-control, do what you want, that's fine. That's, that's what Jude's dealing with. And he's not saying the world's going to say it. He's saying Christians are going to say it. People who claim to be followers of God are going to make excuses to allow sins to be acceptable. And he says, I'm writing so that you'll have the guardrails in place and you won't be led astray by that. That you need to be able to contend for this truth that has been given once for all by God. I thought one writer made this point really well, so I'm not plagiarizing him. I'm just going to quote him. Freedom in Jesus is not the liberty to do what I want, but the power to do what I should. That's what's happening. This freedom that we are enjoying in Christ is not to go out there and dismantle all the guardrails, but rather to drive within the lines. That's what's being given to us. Friends, the idea is that grace is not that it makes my sinning okay. But what grace is supposed to do is give us another day to push to holiness. Another day to put to death that old sinful self. That's what grace is for. Grace doesn't say, now I can do what I want. Grace says, thank you, Lord, for giving me another day to put that old sinful self to death. Because it's a mess. And it needs to be fixed and it needs to be cleaned up. We don't need 
A new revelation is what Jude tells us. And we don't need a change of the revelation that we have. It's been delivered once for all. We need a heart. We need a heart that wants to submit to the revelation that has been delivered once for all. We don't need a heart that says, let me make this fit my life. We need a heart that says, I need to fit my life into what this says. That's what Jude was looking for. We need guardrails. We should want guardrails. We shouldn't be trying to remove the guardrails on our journey to eternal life. Jude 21 is saying that it is possible for us to be kept in the love of God as we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life. The guardrails have been put in place for us. Listen to what he says. Hold on to the teachings that God has given. There is a faith that has been delivered that we need to believe and we need to obey. And we must go beyond just simply, well, I think this and you think that. But to come together in unity so that we can believe exactly what God has taught us to do. Let's go to God in prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, the idea of contending for the faith can be a little bit daunting. I think because we live in a time where it seems that we should not be able to express the truth that you have revealed. And perhaps we've seen in our, with our own eyes and our own lifetimes, people who did this so, so poorly and sinfully. And Lord, I pray that it would be our heart's desire to know your word to know your truth to understand the faith that you have delivered to us and for us to not bend your word into our wishes but Lord that you would transform our hearts to match what you have revealed Lord help us to change what is within us that can resist you, that resists your word, that resists your clear revelation. And Lord, I pray that you would keep us in your love. Keep us on this path. Keep us on the road that leads to eternal life. And help us, Lord, to hold on to these truths with all of our heart. Lord, I pray that you would allow your word, the faith, what your teachings are to mold us and change us in how we believe and how we think and how we act to let it radically transform who we are so that we can be the followers that you want us to be. And so Lord, forgive us when we have not submitted to you as Lord and master. Lord, we know that sinning is saying that we are in charge So forgive us of our sins and give us soft, submissive hearts 
to follow your word, to change our ways, and to seek you until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing an invitation song and we invite you to come to Jesus this morning. We invite you to come to the faith that has been delivered once for all. That there is a truth that God has given. That truth is we are sinners and Jesus came to save sinners. And we are in need of his rescue. We are in need of turning our lives over to him, turning away from a life of sin and selfishness and putting ourselves in charge and instead putting Jesus on the throne, putting him in charge to rule over our lives. We want to help you do that today. Can we help you in any way to turn your life to God, to follow him with all of your heart, to serve him faithfully? You can talk to somebody next to you, talk to me afterward, or you can come forward right now while we stand and while we sing.